Welcome back to another edition of the ASAP Equal Podcast. I'm your host as always, Dr. Jason Woods. Today, as we wrap up a couple in a row on stroke, we have just an absolute treat from Dr. Edward Yauk. He is the Chief of System Research at Mission Health System in Asheville, North Carolina. He's incredibly well-known within the stroke world. He's been on guidelines writing committees and authored multiple papers. And he is here today to talk specifically about systems of care as it relates to stroke. Dr. Yauk, take it away. Thank you very much for the invitation to to participate in this great program. And I'm delighted to be involved and uh, to be presenting today on what is my passion? And I kind of walk that weird hybrid role where I'm formally trained as an emergency medicine physician, but like many of us now in the field, I've been involved in stroke for almost 30 years, um, recognizing the important position that emergency medicine plays in the treatment of patients with acute ischemic stroke. So my goal here today is to give an overview about how we develop and create stroke systems of care and the particular role that emergency medicine and emergency departments play in that system of care and also understand the variability of those systems that are very regionally dependent. So why should we care? And I think, you know, for all of us who still see a lot of stroke patients, stroke, despite our improvements in prevention, is not going to go away. We have an aging population. Uh, And the good news is, is that since 1996, with the approval of Alteplace in 2015, with the pivotal endovascular trials, we actually have several things now in our armamentarium to manage stroke patients. But the key for these, given how time-dependent the brain is, is that they have to be available and they have to be delivered in a timely fashion. And this is where stroke systems of care come in play to, to provide that availability and to maximize opportunities for patients to have optimal outcomes by timely delivery. And again, emergency medicine really is, is the crucible in which all of this occurs and needs to be both at the table, but also, in my mind, leading the charge of developing stroke systems of care. Dr. Yauk, for these discussions, we often start with an overview of the state of the science and research, but since we have just done several in a row on stroke where we have reviewed the state of the literature as well as some of the the hot topics in stroke medicine, can we move right into the meat of the discussion today and tell us what is a stroke system of care? I think it's important to establish when I say system of care, what do we mean by this? And the concept of system of care predates the issues of stroke systems of care. We developed it for other diseases, again, like trauma and like STEMI. So it requires structure. It requires the, the resources within that structure to have a process to put it in place. That process needs to be done in a large organization. And most importantly, we need to see how those things work together to create patient outcomes, both in terms of patient quality of life, the safety and the satisfaction. And this is a feedback system. This is an iterative iterative process where we look at our outcomes, we go back and try to fine tune each one of those, the structure of the process and the system to make improvements in patient outcomes. So that's a system of care. It's like anything else in, in, in engineering principles. And what is it for when it comes to dealing with healthcare systems? Well, again, it's the same thing, um, and yet it's within a geographic region. And more importantly, it's integrated within the local public health system. And when I say that, that is traditionally to mean that the departments of health, either in a city like New York or in a state, are actively involved and actually play a major role in leading this. And again, it its goal is to provide the seamless transition from each phase of care, from the pre-hospital setting to the emergency department, 
to the inpatient setting, perhaps onto the next hospital for more advanced therapies, and then finally to rehab and discharge. So that is the true full component of a stroke system of care. But again, public policy drives access to a lot of those resources. We also have a lot of definitions that we use when we create stroke systems of care or any system of care, including trauma and STEMI. Accreditation is what we all hear about when Joint Commission, for example, comes and visits our hospital. It's looking at the overall organizational performance of your hospital. Certification gets in the more disease-specific entities. So we get certified for being a primary stroke center. We get certified for being a total joint center. So this is much more attention to the performance and capabilities as well as outcomes of patients with a specific condition. Designation is where you take that certification when I'm building a stroke system of care and I rely upon these third-party certification of the various hospitals in my region. We take that information as part of the Stroke Systems of Care Stakeholder Committee and we say, all right, given what we have in our region and given the potential needs of various types of patients, where should they go given X, Y, and Z? And we designate those hospitals as a receiving hospital based on their capabilities. Lastly, we have legislation, and often that is a way to codify what we think is best practice, and we put it in, we, we make it in statute, and we say that thou shall do X, Y, and Z. Now, sometimes that can be very good. It can be there to support stroke systems of care. Legislation can say we need to be able to fund a registry, or we need to fund telemedicine for our state like we did in South Carolina or we need to promote a single pre-hospital stroke tool for use. Sometimes low legislation can be created that actually can be detrimental because it carves out a little piece of what's important in the absence of looking at how all the other stakeholders may have needed to be engaged. So we have to be careful. And so, for example, in the state of North Carolina, we actually have some, some pending legislation that would mandate a certain behavior for patients with large vessel occlusions But that behavior would be very different out in western North Carolina, out in the mountain counties like I live in, compared to downtown Charlotte. So when you have legislation, you have to make sure that there are no unintended consequences of of that legislation because each region may not be able to implement the legislation to the same extent. Certification is very important. Many states got out ahead of this, including New York and Florida, where the state said, here are the criteria for being stroke centered. Massachusetts was another one, and this is what's required to be a stroke center. And that was great for a while, but it became cumbersome, and states don't have the resources to go out and do independent certifications and independent verifications that the resources are in place. And so now, almost uniformly across the United States, most systems of care are utilizing third-party independent certifying agencies to develop criteria and the process by performing certifications. So uh, it can be the Joint Commission, it can be DNV, HVAP, CIHQ. It really doesn't matter. Ideally, each one of those, if you're if you're certifying a comprehensive stroke center, you would have the same requirement across all four certifying agencies. We don't have that right now, except in the state of New York, which I think is fantastic. Um, but that is really the goal. And in the United States, we have basically four levels of certification for our stroke centers. The acute stroke ready, which tend to be the more critical access based hospitals, the primary stroke center, which 
is the bedrock upon which we build the majority of our stroke centers. And then the higher two, the thrombectomy-capable stroke center, which is a more recent form. And then lastly, the pinnacle of the stroke pyramid, if you will, is the comprehensive stroke center that really provides everything that a stroke center can, plus the endovascular approaches and all the interventional neurosurgical approaches and neurocritical care that the sickest of the sick really require. So when you hear about certification levels, these are the four with the various capabilities that they may or may not have. And it's important to know which hospitals in your region have each one of these various levels of certification. And then there will be hospitals that have none and they still need to be part of the system because they will still get patients walking in off the street where they may be in such remote areas that there aren't any hospitals with certification nearby. So just because they're not certified doesn't mean we don't need to include them in the system of care. They're equally important in, in helping patients get to where they need to be. It's interesting that we're gonna see more of this. The CDC has actually taken it upon themselves to really go back and look at what in interventions and what legislations and policy statements have been made that have actually made a difference in the patient's outcomes when it comes to acute ischemic stroke. And they've actually taken four states and looked at this as a way of determining how did these states implement these practices and how did it impact the disparities in care we see across socioeconomic groups and it actually can make a difference and so we know that in the pre-hospital setting for example and they have data now that show that pre-hospital notification and use of ems and and fast interfacility transfer is actually helping patients in their outcomes Telestroke is fantastic. Having statewide registry data is fantastic. And using standards for certification is fantastic. It actually improves patient outcomes. So we're starting to understand what, are, what components of stroke systems of care actually translate to meaningful patient-centric outcomes. I know you are probably getting to this, but I just can't help ask, how do you actually go about creating a system of care? So how do you create a system of care? Well, first, you, you beg, borrow, and steal from any successful systems of care that happen to be in your region or your state. And as I've alluded to many times, we've done this already with trauma, and we've done this already with STEMI. So if something like that already exists and it's been successful within your region, it certainly makes sense to try to take what they have done and build upon that. Most often, it's based on the state. It's based on departments of health or health and human services. They can act as somewhat of the, the, the coordinator for all the various stakeholders. Uh, emergency medicine is almost, it is always at the table, not only in its role of providing direction for emergency medicine care, but also for EMS services. And, you know, again, you make, you got to make sure that it's not just a meeting of the minds where you have the comprehensive stroke centers represented. It needs to involve every hospital system, at least they need to be invited, and it needs to involve every hospital capability. Because again, if you don't involve the hospitals who aren't certified, we still have patients showing up there. They have a stake in this and they have the opportunity to improve their care and to be a meaningful partner in developing a system of care. I will say that patient advocacy groups are important to have on the councils. We have legislative representatives who are there who can often advocate for us when we have legislation that's important. And you also have to think about across state lines. Again, you may be right on the border and the care that you need is on the other side of the border. So having all the various partners who may be even touched by your system of care at the table is really important. And the first thing you do is start off modest. 
honestly, you know, look for low hanging fruit, look for ways that you can build engagement and consensus. You'll never get unanimity. But I think everybody would say that teaching EMS to use a pre-hospital stroke screening tool is the right thing to do. Giving them feedback on their performance is the right thing to do. So look for things that can be unanimously agreed upon as being beneficial to the system and the patient, collect information, use that information to do process improvements, share the wins widely, share the credit widely, and then go back and take the next one and just do this in an iterative fashion. And it's a way also to use this data to advocate for critical resources, like we did in South Carolina when we got the state to invest heavily in telemedicine services. Implement pre-hospital stroke tools. And again, I'm going to transition a little bit at this point into more of the mindset of the emergency medicine physician. You may be asked for help when it comes to what tools should we use in the pre-hospital setting. You will certainly be the recipient of the answers to these. So for example, you may get an ENCODE and you need to know what does your EMS agency use for both a scale and a score. Somebody gives you a race score of five, you need to know that A, they're using a race score, B, what does a five mean? And within your system of care, what do we normally do with a race score of five? So EMS is certainly some, or I'm sorry, emergency medicine is clearly somebody who needs to be involved in the feedback and the use of these types of scales and scores. We also have to work with our EMS agencies in ensuring that they have time goals and they meet these time goals. And these are not based on science. This is based on eminence-based you know, practice, if you will, that we think you know, it should be easy to, to dispatch and turn somebody around. We should get EMS out the door within eight minutes. This is, again, a time-dependent emergency like STEMI. We do want to minimize on-scene time. The next question is, how far do you go and do you bypass? There aren't specific, you know, data-driven measures for this. It depends. It depends on your region. It depends on perhaps the time of day. So it's one that needs to be looked at and evaluated in a quality improvement type of process. But again, the reason why we care about these numbers is because the impact of delays, as I mentioned before, and still that even a 10 minute delay reduces one out of 100 patients functional outcome when they receive alteplase, for example. So this is why we measure out of hospital metrics and we actually establish some goals that we try to go back and improve upon. As an emergency medicine physician, depending upon how long you've been in practice and in practice at that particular hospital, you really need to understand what your hospital policies and practices are. And I'll, I'll say this, that, you know, it's, it's hard to review a, a case and see that there is a patient in the emergency department with a decent sized stroke and they have telemedicine or on-site neurologic expertise that's available and it wasn't utilized and the patient had a bad outcome, regardless of what treatment may or may not have been offered. So if you have an existing policy for how to manage stroke how to engage the other elements of stroke care within your hospital. It's important to know what that is, how to access it, and, and your role as you play in that individual hospital stroke system of care. You'll also need to know your internal resources. As I alluded to your neurologic expertise, that may be you, that may be a neurologist, it may be somebody on the phone. Your neuroimaging, what's available and when. Do you have interventional capabilities? If you do, when? And if not, where do you go? Know your existing referring relationships for any form of acute ischemic stroke, for any form of stroke, especially those who require time-dependent therapies like endovascular care. Again, as I alluded to, you need to know what your EMS partners do and what tools they use and what you should do when you get the call. 
Uh, it's important to know what imaging is required. You know, your, your hospital will have protocols depending upon the time of last known well, stroke severity, and other things as to what imaging is, is required and what also may be required by the telemedicine people. Know what you have in your toolbox, you know, know what you treat. People are switching thrombolytic agents right now. You probably need to know which ones you currently use and know what needs to be done before the patient goes to the cath lab. And again, also know how your performance is being measured by your employer. We are all employed. Our employers all have certain goals that we have and expectations. I can tell you that as chair, door to needle time was a performance metric upon which some of the my faculty's annual bonus was dependent. Um, and so that was a key metric. They needed to know that. And so they needed to be engaged. Door to consult. How long does it time? How long does it take you to call telemedicine? And then increasingly the importance of door in, door out. This is one of our unique skill sets. I know how to transfer a patient emergently out of the emergency department to somewhere else far better than my consulting neurologist does. And so we're going to be looked upon as key individuals in minimizing door in, door out times. I won't speak a lot about this. There's a lot of imaging now that's available and what imaging you need depends upon the patient and depends upon your hospital. Right now, you know, again, thrombolytics out to four and a half hours only requires a non-contrast head CT. After thrombolytics has been considered or if you're not eligible for them, you know, then what additional imaging do you need to get or should you get? Do you get a, a CT angiogram looking for large vessel occlusions? Do you go on and get a CT perfusion scan? Well, that depends. Is it less than six hours or is it more than six hours? Less than six hours, a good aspect score, a confirmed large vessel occlusion, and an otherwise normal non-contrast head CT, that's all that's required for going to the cath lab. Beyond six hours, we need to see if there's salvageable penumbra. So obtaining the right types of imaging or deciding that I don't need to do this because the patient is going to be transferred anyway emergently can make a big difference. And also, how are the results communicated? Who's going to read it? How are they going to get those inform that information back to me? Are there tools that my healthcare system uses to communicate neuroimaging? Knowing this will make things a lot better. I, I could talk all day on what I think are the benefits of telestroke, but it really is transforming stroke care in many environments. And it has been demonstrated to be equally effective as on-site expertise. So we can make safe and effective treatment decisions using telestroke. Uh, again, if you have it, you need to know how to use it, know when to call. And I would argue as soon as you think you have a stroke patient, um, but certainly know if you have a hospital policy for engaging telestroke, you need to know it and you need to, to adhere to it. And they also, the telestroke providers should be key partners. This is the bi-directionality of the arrows I showed earlier. They need to be providing feedback in terms of what went wrong, what went well, providing best practice, uh, facilitating and transfers. They should be engaged. I, 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 you know, ideally, they would actually be involved in calling the receiving hospital since they, you know, made the determination of the need for transfer. So I would encourage you to expect a lot of service from your telemedicine providers because they can and should provide you that. The last. 10 minutes of this podcast is just chock full of information, a lot of which you can't do justice in an audio only format. In the original lecture, Dr. Yauk has incredible visuals that go through the steps that might be needed to create a system of care, some useful references, as well as examples of places and ways that this has been addressed. 
So for all of the audio only listeners out there, I do recommend that you go to the ASAP Equal website and take a look at the slides. I will list any of the references that he mentioned in the show notes as always. For now, Dr. Yalk, as you were talking, I keep envisioning primarily a large urban center and maybe that's just because that's where I live. But what about other regions? So I'm gonna briefly talk a little bit about rural regions. So this is the state of Montana, absolutely beautiful state. Again, about a million people spread out across an incredible uh, environment and geography. But as you can see that the population that does exist is fairly clustered around the bigger cities in the state. And the state of Montana doesn't have a single comprehensive, at least to my knowledge at the present time, does not have a single comprehensive stroke center uh, for the entire state. So this stroke system of care actually involves places like, you know, Idaho and Denver and other places. And the telemedicine is often provided by people outside of the state. So when you create a stroke system of care for the state of Montana and for the rural regions, you'll have stakeholders from four or five other states involved. So that's vastly different than when you do this for this for the city of Man or city of New York. So this is one example where you have to start thinking about transfer times, how far away are hospitals do I activate a helicopter? So for patients who have already kind of gone down the, the uh, triage decision, are they eligible for Alteplace or not? After you've made that decision and now you're, you're facing, do they have a large vessel occlusion? In rural areas, you may actually have transfer times that, that, are, that are quite long because there's just nothing closer by. But again, this is where putting all the stakeholders together, you can start having these conversations. For, for suburban areas, this is Greater Cincinnati. So Greater Cincinnati is, uh, again, shows you that it involves three different states, Indiana, Kentucky, and Ohio. Um, up until recently, I had one comprehensive stroke center, fortunately kind of centrally located at the University of Cincinnati. It has about 1.8 million people in the area. And we think that you probably need at least one comprehensive for every million people. And the goal, ideally, is not to have a comprehensive stroke center pop up across the street. It's not really providing a lot of additional resources, and it doesn't improve issues of time. Urban is a great example. So in L.A. County, as I alluded to before, you know, it has tens of millions of people. It's a very large county. And back in 2015, there were primarily five comprehensive stroke centers all located out in western L.A. County. But what do you do for the rest of the people? And what do you do when you know that comprehensive stroke centers require a certain subarachnoid volume, for example, that will never be achieved? And this is how the concept of thrombectomy-capable stroke centers popped up. How do we define criteria that says, yes, you can do thrombectomy-capable, you can do thrombectomies, and you can do it safely and effectively? And that's how that new certification level was established, was based on the need largely from places like County, but also New York, right? So we have all of our major teaching hospitals in downtown Manhattan. And what happens if you're in Central Park and you have a stroke? Where do you go? And your triage time, depending upon traffic, you know, your transport time may not be 60 minutes. It may be six. So how you do that for the state of, for the city of New York is going to be very different. Uh, and again, we start compressing our bypass times and we start compressing our triage times. I think the other thing for emergency medicine is knowing how to transfer and knowing when to transfer and knowing ahead of time. 
So if it's clear that you do not have a stroke unit and you never admit stroke patients, then that's very different than if you keep the majority except for those who go on to endovascular. So knowing your hospital capabilities and knowing what types of patients stay will help you when it comes time to transferring a patient. The transferring decision will be very patient specific. Again, the patient and the family may absolutely refuse to be transferred, and that's not uncommon. They may have other acute issues or comorbidities or pre-existing conditions that, that may influence the decision. And, you know, how far away is it? Do you do fixed wing to get out of Montana? You know, all those types of things need to go in there. But trying to sort that out when you have an active patient is really too late. So establishing triage and transfer decisions and having a protocol, even if it's a rough one in place, and who do you call and how do you get somebody to facilitate that interfacility transport is really key um, before you need it. So you'll be focused on, we are focused on door in, door out, and emergency medicine will be held accountable for this because we're the ones that facilitate it. So to my point, we need to make it timely and we need to make it safe. And in Western North Carolina, we do not have third-party interfacility agencies that transfer patients between hospitals. We rely on EMS. That's a problem in that we don't have a lot of them. And B, they're not always trained on, for example, post-alteplase protocols. They don't always understand, you know, how to, how to manage angioedema that may happen afterwards. So we need to really make sure that this is one of those transitions of care where bad things can happen and yet it needs to be done very timely. And so EMS is gonna look upon emergency medicine for guidance in this, and we need to provide feedback. The other thing is that you are being measured, right? It's no surprise that increasingly we are being held to an increasing number of benchmarks and standards, and we get our spreadsheets and dashboards every week. And there are a lot of performance metrics that are now being considered important for both certification, recertification, various levels of awards, uh, but also in contracts. And so we are tracking door to CT and door to the ED physician, door to consult, groin transfer. Why? Those are all patiently centric, meaning that the faster we are with those, the better their improve, they're better their outcomes. So these are things that we track. And we also track, you know, discreetly what happens to the patients. Do they die in-house? Do they develop symptomatic hemorrhages? And we're increasingly looking at what's probably most impactful to the patients is their 90-day outcomes. But emergency medicine and the emergency department performance is actually going to be part of almost all these very important measures. And so we need to understand what our role is in facilitating them and also what happens when we don't. I'm just putting this up here. It'll be on, on the slide deck for people. But this, these are just some of the metrics that are being gathered through Get With the Guidelines system of care. So we have the various mission lifeline reports that talk about percentages of patients treated within certain time periods, the use of screens and scores. And then we also look at some of the other pre-hospital measures. And these are being integrated now into a single system, meaning that what happens in the pre-hospital setting is now linked to what happens to the patient in the emergency department, which is now linked to the inpatient stay, as well as any transfer. So the entire system can be evaluated for its overall performance versus looking at each individual component in isolation. And I think in the end, you know, this is when this is what a physician told me when I told him I was leaving engineering and becoming a physician is that, son, you need to know three things. You need you need to be available. You need to be affable. And hopefully you're going to be able. 
And I'm just adding affordability um, as a social commentary and also accountability. But availability of you and your stroke team needs to be 24-7. And we need to make sure that we do this in an affable way and we de demonstrate the ability that our patients deserve. And then lastly, the importance of feedback, right? So the last thing you want to do is start your shift on Monday and have somebody walk down and say, do you remember that patient you saw on Friday, right? How often is that going to be good? So the importance of positive feedback and going back and telling people the role they played in a patient's outcome is incredibly impactful, right? So most stroke patients survive to admission, right? We just think they're going to be okay. Supportive uh, corrective feedback or, or however you want to call it, you know, sometimes bad things happen regardless of our actions and our intent and we need to have feedback, but doing it quickly, showing attribution, contribution is really key. So in summary, it's actually exciting. If we look back, you know, 30 years when we had nothing for stroke, here we are in 2021 and we have several acute treatments whose efficacies are nearly asthmatotic, right? We're not gonna get probably better performance out of our drugs and our devices are recanalizing with ticky 2 b flow 80% of patients. I mean, that's phenomenal. Now our job and our goal is to maximize our effectiveness by getting this out into the public, generalizing these solutions, building systems of care that get patients to the right place the first time, and then looking at ways to improve the overall performance. And what I did not speak about here, but also in part of the system of care, is the importance of public education, primary and secondary prevention, rehabilitation, and lastly, legislative support and funding from the states and various agencies. Again, thank you for the opportunity to present on systems of care in the emergency department, and I welcome any questions. There's actually only one question that I want you to address before we wrap up, and this came from Dr. Corey Zacherson. You talked a lot about how transitions of care are high-risk pieces of the system of stroke care. Do you have any tips on how to minimize this risk? Well, I think this is where the system needs to be built, and so... Um, it depends on your practice, and so I don't want to just have a cop-out to that. But one of the things that I thought was very beneficial when I was at MUSC is that when the stroke team was paged out, um, one is it's a it's a broad notification. So everybody's aware that something's happening. Not everybody responded to the emergency department, but at least the various people who may be engaged in that patient's care downstream were aware that things were happening. And so they gave them a kind of a time to prepare, right? So if it was a large vessel occlusion, you know, maybe we wouldn't put a patient on the cath table for an elective procedure. So we minimize that delay. But what I think made a big important, a big help to the system was the charge nurse from the stroke floor or the neuro ICU came down and was at the bedside. And it was important for two reasons. One is they were an extra pair of hands in an emergency department that was already overstretched. So that was always very welcomed. They were very well versed in the care of stroke patients. They knew how to do the NIH stroke scale. They were familiar with TPA. But more important, they were a historian to what happened in the emergency department that then continued on to the next stage, right? So they went from the emergency department being there when the treatment decisions were made, the conversations with the patient and the family were held, and then they went to the floor and could communicate that with the people who are now taking care of them in the next transition of that patient's care, and they bridged that divide. So the more that you can keep an EMS person around after they drop off a patient for the first 15 minutes and 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 use them, because you know if they drop off and are gone and you really didn't get a good history, you didn't get a 
had last known well. You didn't get the patient's family member's phone number. You know, that's a transition that has opportunity for harming the patient. So trying to find overlap for the various historians that were involved in the preceding patient's care, I think has been very beneficial. The same is true, you know, when you go to the cath lab, it's not just the cath lab that manages the patient at that point. It's also the stroke team who needs to be there present, helping them make some decisions. Again, they're the ones that were talking to the family. They kind of know what their risk aversion may or may not be. So, so having a care historian involved during those transitions from A to B, I think is probably one of the, the best things. Now, is that feasible in smaller hospitals? The answer may be no. Um, but this is where I think direct communication between, for example, the physician providing the telemedicine consult with the ED physician, right? Because the ED physician may have to call yet a third physician, either the cath lab uh, or a third hospital, a second hospital, um, to arrange transport. And, and they need to know why that decision was made by that other physician. So trying to get, ideally, you'd have them all involved in one big phone call but at least having them engaged so it's direct communication versus I heard from the nurse or I read the report or I did this, you know, that's, you can't rely on the electronic health record for information. So, you know, more direct physician engagements, both internally and with the other facilities is I think really important. There is so much more to say about stroke care, but that is where we are gonna have to leave it today. I encourage you to go listen to the rest of the ASAP Equal podcast series around stroke. There are numerous episodes with multiple different experts addressing nearly every aspect of emergency stroke care. It's worth your time. Thank you, Dr. Yaug, for being here. Thank you, listeners, for your time. I've been your host, as always, Dr. Jason Woods. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd or via email at jasonwoodsmd at gmail.com. You can find the rest of the ASAP Equal podcast at the ASAP Equal website or at the Academic Life in Emergency Medicine website, www.aliem.com. <laughs>